Welcome to episode 105 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. And if you want to learn a little more about me, I was recently interviewed by Alex at ourvoicespodcast.com. Check it out. Temperatures are rising, forest fires are more frequent, and storms are more extreme. And what's more, it's our fault. I'm Alex Melia, host of Our Voices. We've just brought out an eight-episode season on climate change, specifically on the experts and activists trying to protect our planet. We'll hear their personal stories and see the world through their eyes. New episodes of Our Voices on climate change are out every Tuesday. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. This week, my featured guest is Eddie Bedrina, CEO at Eden Green Technology, a vertical farming technology company dedicated to changing the way we farm our food and feed our communities. Eddie has over 20 years of experience in growing organizations, leading teams, and bringing brands to market. He was co-founder of BuzzShift, a digital strategy agency for mid-sized brands and organizations. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat. I'm here with Eddie Bedrina, CEO at Eden Green Technology. Eddie, welcome to the Climate Champions. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. It's my pleasure. With regards to climate change, can you talk about your motivating moment when you first decided you wanted to engage in the fight? Man, I would say I was coming off of my first company that had started in 2010 sold it in 2016, and then bought it back 11 months later. That's probably a whole story in and of itself, right? A different podcast. But really, I had the time to take a step back and think, man, what did I want to be doing with the second half of my life, so to speak? I was in the prime of my earning potential, but I also was in the prime of sort of the awareness of the environment around me. I have three kids. I started to see what kind of legacy that I'm going to leave for my kiddos. And a big part of that was what planet was I leaving them with? What environment was I leaving them with? So I just had the opportunity to really be able to sit on that, fortunately, and uh, develop, I would call it a three-point thesis on what I wanted to do. One was I wanted to run a hardware or software company. I had been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt on M&A of professional services. Uh, The second thing is I wanted to have a 10 to 20x impact on culture and society around me. So specifically, like for every one unit of effort that I put in, I wanted to see a 10 to 20x return on community, society, and the environment around me. And then the third is what I was wanted to run what was called a redemptive organization. And really quickly, a redemptive organization is one where leaders eat last, they're sacrificial. It's where employees are not just treated fairly, but they're treated generously. And the last is where society and culture in the environment are not just advanced because this organization exists, but they're actually redeemed and restored 
And so obviously in restoration and redemption, there's a huge part to play for the environment and what we've done thus far in the name of growing our economy and in the name of feeding the population. And I just, I just wanted to do differently. So that was my three-part thesis of figuring out what I wanted to do next. And then fortunately, uh, had an opportunity to become CEO of Eating Green in 2019 to really start to fulfill those three checkboxes. You mentioned your kids. I think you mentioned your kiddos. Yes. What really drives you beyond that? Uh, so my faith is a huge one. So I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm just compelled to love others as God loved us. A part of that is extended to my wife, my family, my three kids. I've got a 17, a 12 and an eight year old. So big spread. But then part of the things that people look over is like, how do you practically love folks around you? And one aspect of that is to, hey, can we, can I make the environment, uh, both the financial as well as the natural physical environment around them in such a way that they would flourish? So if I can do my part to promote human flourishing, I think that's a pretty practical way to love. So that's the big, biggest of big motivations for me is how do I love God and love others in the practical ways to, to make that happen? When you meet people that don't see things as you do from an environmental perspective, a climate change perspective, how do you convince them? There's a saying, some variation of it, which basically goes like this. No one ever changed someone else's mind with facts. It just doesn't happen. That's why the arguing on Facebook and all social is, is a bit of a, a losing proposition to begin with. You're just throwing facts at each other. Really how you change people is, uh, is a combination of truth and it's a combination of just loving them well. So it's a lot of it is emotion, right? We're all emotional beings. Uh, we like to think that we make logical, rational choices, but the reality is we don't. I'm a psychology major from college, so I know that for a fact. No one makes rational decisions. So if you want to convince someone, <clears throat> and specifically with you know climate change and the environment, it really comes down to appealing to to their emotion and appealing to some of the qualitative things, like literally like, Hey, what kind of world are your kids or your grandkids going to be living in? Just think about that. Like sit, stop and think about, Hey, what are they going to be experiencing from the environment around them? Is it something that you're experiencing now? Are you hoping that's going to be the same experience for your grandkids? So the, let's talk through that. What does the science say on what they think there's hypotheses and there's theories. Let's take all the range of theories and let's just talk through and have a conversation of like, Hey, based on this theory or that theory, what is it going to look like for your grandkids? And a lot of folks, my age are looking at that. They are starting to plan for, they have kids of their own and they're starting to think about legacy. Uh, and that's really a time for me with my cohort of, uh, you know, of entrepreneurs and of leaders in, in our city and our community they're really thinking about legacy. So I just talked to folks about legacy and what they want to leave behind and really try to get tactical things on what they want to leave behind. And I may not pull them over to the other side necessarily, but no pun intended, I've planted a seed of what if this does happen? You know, what if the sea levels rise by two inches or three inches? What does that really mean, practically mean, right? So for all my friends in Houston, that means a lot because now instead of, you know, the, the shores being by Galveston, the shores are 10 miles away from downtown. That's a huge difference, right? So am I saying that's going to happen? No, but let's think about that, right? Let's really think through those theories. And 
people understand that. I think people resonate with that. I mean, they're not going to see it in their lifetime, but the ones who want to think ahead, the ones who want to think about legacy, they start to factor that into some of their everyday decisions. I interviewed Neil Belfay, and he did an analogy that I really love that I think is appropriate to talk about here. He said, while he happens to be certain that we are dealing with a live grenade, if a grenade is thrown through a window and you're in the room, you might not know if it's live or not, but it might be live wouldn't you either run away or jump over it or throw it out the window rather than just say, eh, it's nothing, it won't do anything. I mean, there are enough events right now that have happened and enough scientific indications. It shows me these things are going to happen, but even if it doesn't convince you 100%, it's enough to take action. I think in conservative circles, it's sort of a sarcastic phrase, which is the science is settled, right? And something comes out and say the science is settled and then something contradictory to that comes out and they can be sarcastically say, well, the science settled, right? It's always changing. And the reality is, yeah, the science is not settled, but like you said, even if there are indications of it, wouldn't you want to take practical steps to prepare for it? And you're absolutely right. I think most people at the end of the day, they may not go to the extremes of one end or the other, but they will take practical steps and start to change some of their decisions just in case this happens, right? Just in case uh, the environment starts to change, the weather patterns start to change. I mean, so even with eating green right now, practically speaking, we had a freeze here uh, last year that was a once in a hundred year freeze, as as they say, right? It's settled it, only it, once in a hundred right, years. Once in a hundred years. But guess what? As we're building our new facility, uh, our new commercial facility, just because we have to do it from an insurance perspective, but also just from a logistical operational redundancy perspective, we've had to up our standards of freezes to a once in a 20 year type mentality, right? That's just a practical application of being prepared for the worst. And we have to do it because it makes good business sense. I can't afford for the freeze, what the consequences of the freeze that happened last year, I can't afford for that to happen on our future commercial facilities going forward. So even if it's a once in every 20 year possibility, I still have to implement those contingency plans. I still have to implement those expenditures, those operational expenditures of the piping and how thick it is and the type of you know wrapping we put around it. It costs more money. Yes. But we have to do it. So if I'm thinking about that in business terms, why would I not think about it in terms of my family's terms, which in my family is 10 times, 20 times, a hundred times more important than my business. It would be great if you could talk about what you and what Eden Green does to help mitigate climate change. Yeah. So Eden Green technology is, uh, we're a vertical farming platform that we've combined the best of greenhouses, which take as much sunlight as you can get. And it's free combined with the verticality and the density of vertical farms uh, and how much produce you can grow per square foot. So in the course of a year, one square foot of our facility can grow 29 pounds of leafy greens over 11 to 13 harvests. You multiply that out an acre and a half of ours, uh, rather 62,000 square feet of ours greenhouses can grow a little under 2 million pounds of leafy greens. Here's where the environmental benefits of it is. One, it only takes an acre and a half to grow that many greens. That's equivalent to 40 acres of traditional farmland. 
when you think about what those 40 acres of farmland uh, absorb in terms of water and what they waste in terms of water, they're wasting little around, call it 800,000 gallons of water a year. Our facility in the course of a year over 10 to 13 harvests or 11 to 13 harvests only wastes two households worth of water, which is about 90,000 gallons to produce all those greens. And we do it in such a small condensed space that the acre and a half from a footprint perspective, so much less, 99% less than a traditional farm. So we're saving water. We're not doing, we're not providing runoff of pesticides of it's just some of the toxic runoff that you see from uh, cattle and, and traditional farmland. Uh, and then lastly, the use of sunlight allows us to be way more efficient in terms of energy usage than a vertical farm, which is all enclosed, right? And they're using thousands upon thousands of kilowatt hours of LED lights, plus just the capital expense of LED lights. We're using a fraction of that because we're using uh, the greenhouse, the sunlight in these greenhouses to, uh, to grow these plants. So from an environmental standpoint, 99% less land, 98% less water and doing it in such a way with a minimal amount of natural insect pest management. And then in such a way that it's providing tens of thousands of servings of uh, food for, for people around us. Very exciting. Has the pandemic affected what you or the company does? Yeah, actually it, it has. It's heightened the need for what we what we do. So when the pandemic hit, and we're still seeing ramifications of it, but what we saw was this real fragility in the supply chain. Uh, 90% of all of our lettuce, just lettuce alone, 90% of all U.S. lettuce comes from one valley in California, Salinas Valley in California. 25% of all produce in the U.S. comes from the Central Valley in California, this long stretch. And so to ship all of that over to the Midwest or even to the East uh, really strains supply lines and it just increases the chances for waste because the produce is in supply chain for so long and it increases the chances for uh, bacterial outbreaks because they're sitting. So what we're doing is fundamentally changing the supply chain by putting these greenhouses locally. Uh, so we're, our goal is to create a mesh network of nationally local greenhouses that allow us to, for folks to have consistent, affordable, safe access to nutrition, uh, nutritious greens, wherever they are. Mesh network means like communicating between nodes. So you're not really communicating, right? They're individual. They don't really use each other, do they? They can and they can't. So for instance, if one set of greenhouses focuses because they're up north, they focus on kale, but the greenhouses down here because of demand focuses on lettuce, they can intertrade at prices. They're not having to sell to each other. They can intertrade at prices and sell in a way that's very efficient, right? And that's they're a pretty also- cool redefinition of the word mesh. Oh yeah, term mesh totally. Network. And I'm a, I'm a technology guy, so right, that's how. Yeah. But then the other piece is where we have innovations in certain greenhouses on how they're growing certain varietals down in the South versus the North, or just innovations on cleaning or automation or labor or you know any of that HR issues. They can all share that within each of, within each of the greenhouses. So there is information sharing that's happening on a technological innovation perspective that allows it to happen when you have this interconnected set of greenhouses. 
You mentioned another business that you bought and sold and bought and started and bought and sold. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your prior background? Sure. So back to the beginning, graduated from Texas A&M, which it comes full circle, right? Because that's an ag school. Graduated from A&M with a degree in psychology, uh, went up to Washington, D.C., actually worked in government for about six years in foreign policy in the White House. Then I came back to Texas and started a digital ad agency. We just saw a need in the marketplace. This was back in 2010 for natively digital platforms, uh, in addition to TV, print, and radio, ad platforms, uh, content, websites. So my business partner and I created this, probably I would say one of the first digital agencies called BuzzShift. Uh, started it from scratch, bootstrapped it in 2010, grew it to size where we were uh, acquired in 2016. And then, uh, as I mentioned before, I think the visions were aligned, but, but it went a little off the rails where we had a chance to buy it back in 2017 and then ran it for a couple of years before I jumped onto Eden Green. Can you talk about some setbacks that you had? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Man, I could talk about setbacks all day long. Um, so one of the things, just from a business perspective, uh, one of the things that we struggled with, with BuzzShift, uh, was just the idea of capital allocation. So we bootstrapped it and we really prided ourselves on not having any loans or any lines of credit. But I think or later on, we really figured out like, man, there are some good ways to leverage capital uh, to grow this business more and honestly to care for our employees more the way that we were you know, working with PL and with margins uh, that I think, you know, just truth be told, I think I would have leveraged capital in a much different way to grow that business in the last time. I would say from a practical matter with Eden Green, we learned a lot from one, the pandemic and two, the freeze down here on how we're building our greenhouses. It's been a tough slog. I'll be super honest. It's been a tough slog since I took it over in 2019 of really refocusing the vision and the purpose of Eden Green and then getting the right people in line and then executing also just finding our business model. It's probably been a year and a half of just, you know, and, and especially with the pandemic, I took it over in, in late 2019. And of course the pandemic hit in 2020, it made us pivot to looking to the community. Like there wasn't a lot that we could do during the early months of the pandemic because capital had dried up and we were just sort of in a holding pattern. Fortunately I had really patient investors but we were like, okay, what are we going to do in this pandemic where everything shut down? And immediately my, you know, my thought was like, man, we're going to go short on food. I can already see it. I just, from my previous background with international affairs, I knew when things were going to sort of squeeze the supply supply lines. So we, we pivoted uh, and we had our R and D facility going full steam, but we were doing tests on varietals that people could eat and we knew that they wanted to eat. So we gave away tons of produce. In the meantime, I've got a burn rate going, right? My investors are saying, okay, what, what are you doing? It doesn't look like there's a lot of traction, but between feeding the community and then retooling the business, there's obviously a lot of doubt, a lot of uncertainty during that time. But amidst that doubt and uncertainty, there was also a, hey, we know this is about the community. We know that about this is about the environment. How can we continue to work on the business, not lose heart, but continue to work on the business, hone the model so that when this does, whenever this does sort of start to thaw, we're ready to go. 
I say all that because it was a mixed bag. I mean, it was a lot of hard work. It was a lot of encouraging my team. It was a lot of encouraging myself, right? Honestly, of like, just, okay, what, why am I doing this again? Like, do we just need to throw in the towel? Like it's six months into the pandemic. I just took over this company and what, what's going on? So all to say is I think my family and my community around me really just encouraged encouraged me as a leader and encouraged me to just keep on going and keep on plugging away and being excellent and diligent every day I came to work to make this company better. And, and I think we're, we're all the better for it a year and a half later. That brings me into my next question, which is what successes are you most proud of? Honestly, I would say a big success is getting through the pandemic. It's a startup on a burn rate, getting through the pandemic and coming out of it not just surviving, but I think my team really thrived during the chaos and uncertainty. And that's a huge accomplishment, not just for my team, but you know, for my family as well. I'm trying to teach my kids not to just survive in chaos, but to thrive in uncertainty. Because if you can do that, then when things are certain, man, you are set up for success. So I think that was probably one of the biggest accomplishments that, I, that I'm really proud of is a year and a half, two years later, my team is so set up for success. They're dialed in, focused on the mission, and there's no wavering. Like we know what we need to do. We know the milestones we need to hit and everyone's on the same page because they learned to thrive in that uncertainty of the pandemic. When you look at the future, 20, 30, 40 years from now, with regards to climate change, where do you see the earth? Where do you see us? The realist in me has a bit of a dim view uh, when it comes to what my grandkids are going to be experiencing in terms of more volatile weather patterns, in terms of water shortages. Right now, water is the new oil. There's no other way to put it. And if you don't believe me, look at all the wealthiest people in the world, especially Bill Gates. They are buying up river and lake adjacent land, especially land with water rights, like nobody's business because they know water is the new oil. So I think there's going to be a lot of water shortages that my grandkids are going to have to worry about. I think just our daily routines are going to look totally different because of water shortages and because of weather volatility. I think our supply chains are going to have to fundamentally change in terms of accessible, consistent food supplies to different regions of the world because of just environmental changes. So I, I think 30, 40 years from now, there's going to be significant differences in the way that we live our lives and not just the cool stuff like electric cars, but really, I mean, day-to-day -day things like how you're getting to the grocery store, what you're getting at the grocery store, when you can get those things at the grocery store, how you're taking showers, how you're flushing toilets, the basic, basic stuff of life. So how bad do you think it's going to get before it gets better? I actually have a lot of optimism in the generation, my generation, the generation's proceeding us. It's, it's like my kids. I think they're just much more in tune of, of the fluidity of climate change. They're much more in tune of what we talked about earlier, which is just being prepared, right? I have a lot of optimism that they're going to prepare for the worst, but then also operate towards making it better, more so than even my generation or a generation before me. I'm pretty optimistic, actually. Has the pandemic changed your perspective at all? From an environmental perspective, yeah, it's been interesting to see the data come out on what happened in the early months of the pandemic when 
everything basically shut down, you know, and you saw CO2 levels, you saw other uh, pollution levels go down. Uh, And it was interesting to note for me, because even with everything shut down, there was still a level of pollution and a level of just environmental change that was happening, even with no one moving. And so that really made it evident to me that we've got to make some bigger changes in infrastructure, in uh, supply chain, in daily operations, right, of of our lives, uh, because no one's going to shut down again, barring another pandemic or something like that. No one's going to stay right where they are for months at a time. So we just got to do things differently if we want to make a change. What's your advice for people that want to make a difference? I would say start at home, right? Whether it's emotional, whether it's relational, whether it's environmental, uh, whether it's financial, it all starts in, I call it the, the nuclear family unit, right? Or wherever your household is, whatever that's made up of, your, you and your partner or just by yourself, it starts there. It starts the way that you think about what am I putting into my body and how am I getting that? Am I willing to pay a premium for X, for locally grown? What does recycling look like? Uh, what does composting look like? Here in America, I like to say we're professional consumers, right? You know, it's a self-analysis of like, what am I really consuming and why, right? And I'm not just talking about a physical level. I'm also talking about like what we watch, what we listen to, um, how we watch, how we listen to it. Like what what are we really doing with our lives? Uh, What are we really consuming? Uh, And so once you can start to take stock of what you're really consuming and more importantly, why you're consuming it and what you're trying to solve or what you're trying to take comfort in, or what you're trying to cope for, really, once you, once you can take stock of that, then you can start to make a change of like, well, I was doing this to cope for whatever, right? I really don't need to be doing that anymore. Practical example, I was drinking sodas to cope for the fact that I just need to stay awake. Well, I know that's not good for my body. I know that sodas don't have any real benefit at all to me. They're empty calories and more so just the amount of sugar in there is a net negative to my body. So what's with the sleep thing? Well, I'm not getting enough sleep. Okay. So once you start to change those and you ask the why and you get to the bottom of it, then you start to affect change on everything else. So if I'm not buying sodas, well, then how am I spending? What portion of my budget is I spent on sodas? What could I be buying instead? Okay. So I'll buy bottled water. So why am I buying bottled water? Like, why not get a whole home house filter, right? Or a Brita or something like that. So then you're starting to think, okay, so if I'm not buying bottled water, what am I doing? Well, I'm not contributing to a crap ton of plastic, you know, in the landfills and in the oceans around me. That is a significant environmental change. Just honestly, if you trace it all the way back, because you want to sleep better. It's, do you see, like there's such a waterfall effect with our basic human needs that I think if people just sat down and turned off their devices for a little bit and just sat down and think, why am I doing this? Like, this is really questionable in my life. Why am I drinking five sodas a day? Or I live in Dallas and, and we've got lawns. Like, why am I watering my lawn three times a week? Like, what am I really trying to prove here? Right. Can I dry skate my lawn? Can I put in natural you know, they look better. Can I put in natural sort of uh, plants that don't need that much water that are used to this environment? Then I'm not watering my lawn today. Well, what does that do? Well, and can I grow a garden in there? And my daughter's actually really 17 year old daughter. She's like, why do we have a lawn again? This is so dumb. Anyway, but when you do that, then you notice, oh my gosh, I'm saving a hundred dollars a month on water. Now, 
there's a water usage effect, but there's also a cost. Like what could I be doing with a hundred dollars a month? And then you kind of work through the motions of that. Okay. So I put in Lance hardscaping, I'm using less water. I'm saving a hundred dollars a month. Well, I just used 500 gallons less of water a month. How great is that for the environment? It's just practical, right? Super practical. Again, no one ever convinced another person to change their mind with facts. It's got to be something more emotional, more essential to what they're dealing with in order to affect change on a larger level. I agree with what you've said, but I think we should have two categories. One that takes personal change into account and one where you just have to invest some money because I think it's a lot easier to invest money than to actually change what you eat or drink. People have a really hard time with that. Oh, that's totally fair. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 totally fair. There's a whole conversation on the investment side around uh, impact investing, sustainable investing, alternative energy investing, and the whys. And not even just impact or sustainable, but also like from capital allocation, like, hey, what is the real cost of this capital? What's the cost to the environment around me? What's the cost to relationships around me? Do I really want to invest in companies that maybe maximize my profit, but they're at the deleterious effect of the employees there? There's a huge discussion being had on the institutional and the, and the private wealth world about, about capital allocation and the true cost, cost of capital. Do you have any questions for me? It's really the, the question of, for you and your audience of like, hey, how else could you see platforms like ours? How else do you see the changing nature of food production being positively or negatively affecting our environment? Uh, I'm open to those questions, right? I'm open to to challenging my my business and and my cohorts in the vertical farming and the greenhouse space of like, hey, have you really thought about the cons of this? Probably won't shut down. You know, it's not going to make me, you know, just shut down my business wholesale. But I'm I'm always open to hearing the pros and cons and being having a realistic look in the mirror of here are the things. It's not all roses and in, in our industry, and so I just. I want to have a good realistic view from the consumer because at the end of the day, that's all that matters is the consumer to us. And we try to be consumer centric. And if they say, hey, love what you're doing, but X, you might want to think about X. I have to take that into stock. Well, I don't have any negative things to throw at you. I'm excited by new ways of producing food that's better for the environment. I love the idea of producing locally. So it's all good for me, but I'm not an expert. I do believe that we need all arrows in the quiver, and that definitely applies to food. So I'm also excited about the companies trying to grow meat without using animals, or the companies that are trying to figure out how to make plants taste more like meat or or provide more protein. To me, we need everybody working on this because what we have today is not sustainable and won't take us to the future. Oh yeah, for sure. That is a fact. Is there anything else you want to say? I think that's it. If people are interested more, they can look at eatinggreen.com, E-D-E-N green.com. And then social wise, Eating Green Tech, people can find out more there. If you fill in contact form, reply on social, you'll get a response. I hope that people reach out to you. And with that, I'm going to wrap this up 
with a wrap. You realize that you finished the first half of your life and you want to do something better for the world, for your kids and for your wife. You care about others, want to improve the way they live. So you created a company that is redemptive. You want them to flourish, your sisters and your brothers. So you created an environment that's focused on others. Emotion and loving, that's a better method, a better kind, instead of using data and rational facts, which never changes people's minds. It's important to have independent local food ability because during the pandemic we had supply chain fragility. When one of your farms comes up with new automation, you use a mesh network for shared innovation. You went to A&M and you don't want to brag, but it came around full circle because it's a school for ag. The pandemic hit you hard. It's like you couldn't buy a vowel, but people told you, hey, don't throw in the towel. When you're going through tough times, don't just try to survive. When you face uncertainty like the pandemic, you need to thrive. The weather will go against us and that will make us toil. The rich are buying water because it's the new oil. Your technology for growing food uses less space, water, and soil. It's too bad some people consider a U.S. citizen a professional consumer, but hopefully that is a bit of a misnomer. You're giving us farming that's as dense as there's ever been, a most efficient method of growing food that I've ever seen, a super cool company that's eating green. A huge thank you to you, Eddie Badrina. Way to go, Lee. That was impressive. I love it. I'm very excited by Eddie's vertical farming innovations focus on how we can grow more food more efficiently and more sustainably. I'm also very excited about how he leads Eden Green as a redemptive company, putting employees first. I can't wait to try the food. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Eddie reminded me that although I'm a fact and data person, hey, I love what I can learn by studying the data. Most people are not. They will be swayed by emotions, stories, and events, especially in their own lives, in order to be inspired to help mitigate climate change. Mm-hmm.